Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. I'm what you might call very good at hide and seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi Fi all over the house, even in my super secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite. Ha! Found ya. How? You'll have to find my tablet on. Get wall to wall Wi Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply, not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Well, football is often seen as an incubator of rough and wild masculinity, but one former NFL lineman turned church minister, turned high school football coach, sees football as a platform to teach young men how to be both tough and tender. My guest today on the podcast has spent a season with this sage coach and walked away having learned what it really means to be a man, as well as built a stronger relationship with his own father. His name is Jeffrey Marks, and his Pulitzer Prize winning book is Season of Life, A Football Star, A Boy, A Journey to manhood. And today on the show, Jeffrey talks about his relationship with retired NFL athlete and now minister and high school football coach named Joe Ehrman. Jeff begins by sharing what he learned from Joe and other NFL players about what it means to be a man during his stint as a ball boy for the Baltimore Colts in the 1970s. He then shares how Joe went from being a party animal to an inner city minister who focused on helping young men. We then discuss what Joe sees as the lies of masculinity in the popular culture and how they need to be replaced with what he calls strategic masculinity. We end our conversation talking about how coaching high school football ties into Joe's ministry to men. Now, Joe's philosophy on masculinity helped Jeffrey draw closer to his father. Lots of great insights on this show, so be sure to take notes. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash season of life. Jeffrey Marks, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. So you wrote a book several years ago, back in 2007, that I just came across. I don't know how I stumbled across it, but I'm glad I did. It's called Season of Life, A Football Star, A Boy, A Journey to Manhood. And this book is about a lot of different things that hit close to home for a lot of men, but primarily follow a high school football coach named Joe Ehrman. And he's had a fascinating career before he became a football coach. So before we get to his career as a football coach, high school football coach, can you tell us about his career with the Colts, the Baltimore Colts? Sure. Well, back in the 1970s, Joe Ehrman was a big-time football star. He was a, an All-American defensive lineman at Syracuse first, and then he was a first-round draft pick of the Baltimore Colts long before they moved away to Indianapolis. And he did really well with the Colts. He ended up being the defensive captain of that team and one of the real leaders of the team, both on and off the field. Joe played eight years with the Colts from 1973 to 1980, and then he had two more years in the NFL with the Detroit Lions, 81 and 82. So he was a big-time player who really did a lot of things on the field, but also touched a lot of lives off the field. And your relationship with him, it began when you were a kid yourself. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Right. I had an incredible experience, unbelievably fortunate as a kid, starting at the age of 11. I was a ball boy for the Baltimore Colts. So During my summers, I lived with, worked with, and traveled with a professional football team, and that was an amazing experience as a young boy. I did that all the way up through my high school years and a couple years of college during the summers as well. So Joe Ehrman was one of many guys who really impacted my young life, and to this day, 
there's really not a day goes by, even though I'm in my fifties now, where there isn't something that happens that somehow draws me back to those childhood experiences. I never could have guessed then the way it would impact my life. Yeah, I mean, you talk about in the book hanging around these professional football players. You learned things about being a man that you you didn't learn from your dad, but you saw and experienced firsthand with these guys. What were some of those things you learned from these pro football players? Right. Well, absolutely. My dad, an amazing man, a man who I always knew loved me, but I knew that through his actions, not through his words. He wasn't very expressive. He was a stoic. He was a man whose emotions were kind of tucked away. I would say he kept his his emotional thermometer stuck right in the middle, no highs, no lows. So as a boy, I never really saw a lot of those pieces from my dad, things that I would later see from the Colts and experience and realize that it was okay for a man to express his emotions, both the excited highs and also the sad lows from time to time. I saw grown men cry in the Colts locker room and, and at different times with some of their experiences in the NFL. And you know, as a boy, I never knew that that was okay. You know, you look up to those professional athletes so much. And so to see some of those things from them, I think really impacted me and my understanding of what it meant to be a man. You talk about Joe during his playing days and, you know, he wasn't too much of a party animal, but he liked to have a good time. And he was kind of a huckster, a prankster on the team, but he had an event in his life. His brother died and it completely changed him. How did how did that, the death of Joe's brother, and when did that happen in his career, and how did that affect his, his life going forward? Right. Well, Billy Ehrman was Joe's younger brother and really best friend, and so that was a huge turning point in Joe's life. I would say that he was a party animal prior to that. Joe was a guy who, if you wanted to know where the team party was or where they were going to play poker on Wednesday nights or where to get a cold beer after the game or any of that stuff, Joe was really the go-to guy. So. He had a lot of fun during his early NFL days. The big turning point for him was in 1978. That's when his younger brother, Billy, died after a long battle with aplastic anemia. It changed everything for Joe. That's when Joe really started searching for meaning in his life, trying to understand what he had been fed for so many years about what it supposedly means to be a man, a successful man in this world, and did a lot of reevaluation. Ended up going into the ministry through his lessons learned and also lessons taught uh, it really changed everything for him. Well, yeah, you talk a little bit about his ministry because it was pretty unique. Well, when Joe became a minister in Baltimore, he started in the inner city, and uh, he had a program called The Door, and that was in a pretty tough neighborhood in Baltimore where a lot of young people and a lot of families needed all kinds of help. So that was typical Joe. I mean, Joe was one of these guys that was always reaching out to pull others in, as I mentioned uh, briefly ago. Uh, I happen to be very fortunate to be one of those starting as an 11-year-old boy. So I knew and saw and felt like and meant when Joe got involved in your life. And later on, once he became a minister and was able to reach so many families in the inner city, that really changed a lot of lives for a lot of people. And then another unique thing about his ministry is that he's made a focus on reaching out to young men. Why have that focus? Yeah, that became much later. Uh, that came on much later. Joe came to this conclusion, you know, working in the inner city and, and seeing and experiencing all those ills that impact so many, uh, whether it's the issue of drugs, whether the issue of fatherlessness, so many other things going on, problems in the city, socioeconomic issues. Uh, Joe came to realize this, that all of those other problems were really just a subset of the biggest problem of all. And that is that we as a culture don't do a very good job of teaching boys and men what it really means, what it really ought to mean to be a man in this culture, a man of substance and impact. And so he started a program called Building Men for Others. 
which is all about tearing down what he calls the societal lies of false masculinity and then replacing those and teaching them into young people's lives, replacing them with what he calls true masculinity or, you know, strategic in the sense that strategic masculinity means that it's intentional. You need to think it through. You need to decide for yourself how you're going to define masculinity, and then you need to live into that definition. Well, what are some of these false lies that Joe thinks are out there in our culture? Joe has, in his program, he came up with uh, three lies that he calls false masculinity. The first is athletic ability, and that starts at a very young age. We learn that if we can play a little better basketball or football or baseball on the playgrounds, and somehow we're a little better than or a little more than the other boys, and you know, that's fun and that's all good. And, you know, we all want to be good athletes and enjoy those things. But quite honestly, it has nothing to do with later being a man of substance and impact. And then you get a little older and you reach that second lie in Joe's definition, sexual conquest. And not talking about healthy relationships there. There's nothing in the world than a healthy relationship. This is what I would call the notch in the belt mentality, where you're really bringing girls and later women around you, not for anything that serves them, but for your own individual purposes and gratification. And that too becomes an absolute lie. If you're going to define yourself by sexual conquest, that doesn't make you a man. If anything, that makes you a user of other people. And then you get a little older and you reach that third piece, economic success. That's what kind of car do you drive? What house do you live in? What's your zip code? Issues revolving around power and privilege and prestige, your job title, and so many other things that come into play the way we too often view this world as adults. And, you know, again, I'm not suggesting that there's something wrong with wanting and having good things in your life. That's a beautiful thing, but there's something terribly wrong if that's how you're going to measure yourself as a man. So Joe takes those three pieces, the athletic ability, the sexual conquest, economic success. He calls it from the ball field to the bedroom, to the billfold. And he debunks all of those things. And then he replaces those with his definition of strategic masculinity. And what is that definition of strategic masculinity? Well, in Joe's view, there are only two categories. The first is relationships. That's the ability to love and to be loved. That's the ability to look another man or woman or child in the eye and express to them your love and then hear and see and feel that coming back as well. And, you know, you want to get to the point where if I were to walk out of here today and get hit by a truck on the road and I was on my deathbed tonight, I was looking back over my life, I'd be able to ask myself certain questions that are all relationship-based, questions such as, what kind of husband was I? What kind of father? What kind of son? What kind of brother? What kind of classmate, teammate, community member? All of these issues that revolve around relationships, and I want to know that I'm going to measure my life looking back on it based on those things, not on things like how many home runs did I hit on a baseball team? How many $100 bills did I put in my bank account? How many cars did I put in my garage? Those things really be meaningless at a time like that. So that's all about relationships. And then the second piece, it's having a cause beyond yourself. Joe calls it a transcendent cause. That means it's bigger than your own individual hopes, dreams, and desires. It's all about serving other people. Your cause can be large. It can be small. You can have a single cause or multiple causes. But ultimately, if you're on that same deathbed tonight, you want to know that somehow you lived, you learned, 
you loved and you left this place a little better than it was before you got here. That's awesome. So he has his ministry at the door. He also has his men's ministry he's doing, reaching out to young men. How does football connect with this? How did he end up coaching high school football on top of being a minister? Well, it's funny uh, to think back on it now, but in 2001, when I reconnected with Joe after 18 years, 18 years had passed between the last time I had seen him as a professional football player and then reconnecting with him in Baltimore. And I didn't know that he was doing this either. Uh, You know, I had seen and heard little things about what he was doing in the inner city. I knew that he was responsible for building the first Ronald McDonald house in Baltimore, serving uh, sick children and their families, uh, a tribute to his brother, Billy. I knew a lot of those things, but I had no idea he was coaching high school football on the side. And Joe explained to me that the only reason he was doing that, it wasn't really that he cared a whole lot about football anymore. It was simply because he saw that as the perfect context in which to reach and teach teenage boys about these concepts that he had developed related to masculinity. So, you know, I would make the argument that sports in America today is the most powerful platform we have. So if you want to reach and teach teenage boys important concepts such as these, what better way to do it than within the context of high school sports? And so how does Joe go about doing that? You know, what's his technique of imbuing these things to these young men where they actually want to listen and apply these things that he's telling them? Well, Joe was coaching along with his best friend, Biff Poggi. And Biff was the head coach and Joe, the defensive coordinator of a team called the Gilman Greyhounds in Baltimore. And one of the things that was so beautiful just to start with was that all the boys would see and witness and understand and then ultimately want to emulate the type of relationship that Joe and Biff had. So they would see it right there before they even started learning about it from the lessons. And Joe and Biff had a whole program where they had a playbook that was unlike any other in high school football. You know, think about high school football, the most violent sport in America, football. Think about high school where all you want to do as a teenage boy is impress other boys and the girls, of course. But here were the main concepts in their playbook for that high school football team. Kindness empathy, inclusion, justice, living a life of service to others, integrity, bringing all your talents both on and off the field. Overall, what they were doing was trying to teach those boys that really what we want to do as boys and men and ultimately as human beings, any human being, is keep the head and the heart connected. You know, physically in our body, the head and heart on average are about 17 inches apart. But as boys and young men, we're taught so early to separate those two, to keep them as far apart as we possibly can and then sever that cord. And we're taught that we're supposed to lead with the head and not with the heart. In the biggest picture, the broadest context, what Joe and Biff are teaching those boys to do is keep the head and the heart connected. I'll give you an example. The first day I showed up there, summer of 2001, for their first day of summer football practice, here's the very first thing I saw on that football field. It was the strangest thing I've ever seen And I've lived my whole life in one way or another around the world of sports. I saw a high school football coach. In this case, it was Biff, the head coach, standing at one end of the field and about 80 or 90 boys, junior varsity and varsity football players, sitting in the grass at that end zone at the end of the field. Biff was standing before them, about seven or eight assistant coaches standing behind Biff. And the first thing Biff does is yell out to those boys, what is our job? And they yell back in unison, to love us. What is your job? He yells to the boys and they yell back to love each other. 
Now, I thought that was about the weirdest thing I'd ever seen. I didn't really understand what that was all about. But as I spent more time there, I came to realize that signature exchange really represented everything that Joe and Biff were doing with those boys because they weren't just building a team. They were building a community. No, I love that. It reminded me of my high school football days. When I first started playing high school football, the coach I had, you could tell that his primary focus was developing young men into men. And he taught these life skills. And I remember we got another coach and you could tell his goal was, you know, win football games. I mean, you could tell the difference. And I, I preferred the first one because I felt like I got a lot more out of it. And th that's what I remember the most is, I mean, I'm still like, like you, like I think back upon those days with, with fondness and like, I still go back there to find, you know, lessons on how to be a man from what that head coach was trying to teach me as a 15 year old kid. Right. And, and you touch on something so important there. You talk about the different kinds of coaches and how all these years later that has stayed with you. But again, let's broaden this thing out and understand the kind of coaches that these two men really want to be. And now sharing this with people all over the country that hopefully they've impacted and I've seen them impact so many other programs. Let's take that word coach for just a minute. And in our culture today, we have so many different types of coaches, not just athletics coaches. We have business coaches. We have life coaches, all kinds of coaches, even the sports coaches. We see all different types. We see the, the screamers. We see the supportive type, those who affirm. But let's go back to that word coach. The first use in the English language, a horse-drawn carriage. But it wasn't just any type of carriage. It had a specific purpose. And the purpose was to convey or transport a person of importance from where he or she is to where he or she wants to be, needs to be, or ought to be going. Now, the 1500s, I would make the argument all these years later that what we ought to be expecting of and, in fact, demanding of our youth sports coaches is that they take our people of importance, our young people, from where they are to where they want to be, need to be, or ought to be going, keeping in mind that should have nothing to do with points on the scoreboard league titles, state championships, or any of that stuff, that's all about creating lives of substance and impact. And that's exactly the way these coaches want to approach it. And this isn't to say, like, sure, he had this primary focus of, you know, developing character in, in these young men, but, like, this was a good football team, too. They did well. Oh, they did really well. And that's what's so interesting. You know, Joe and I have spent years on the road since this book first came out in late 2003 and 2004 when we started doing a lot of work all over the country. And one of the most amazing things was how certain questions were immediately asked. And one of the first was, this all sounds great, but can you still win? A lot of people couldn't see how you could possibly do all this touchy-feely life stuff within the context of high school football and still win games. Well, they kind of start paying more attention when they realize that eight of nine years, Joe and this team was the champion in the toughest conference in the city of Baltimore. And four of those years, four of those nine, the Gilman Greyhounds were undefeated and ranked number one in the entire state of Maryland. So here's the deal. Those Gilman Greyhounds, they're going to light you up. Trust me, that whistle blows, they'll light you up. But when it blows again because the play is over, they'll also reach out a hand and help pick you up. So that's what they're instilling in those boys. And let me tell you, those boys come together in ways I have learned and, and had some of the same experiences you mentioned. I didn't play high school football. I played high school basketball. And I had a coach who was a screamer, and I had a coach who was an affirmer, two different coaches. And I can assure you that all, all these years later, 
the affirmer has had a lot bigger impact, and he brought us together in ways that the screamer never could have. In fact, to this day, as a 54-year-old man, one of my dear friends in this world is my high school coach who was the affirmer. And so it's all about relationships in the program that they're teaching, and those relationships don't only bring a team together where that team becomes a true community and that community becomes true champions, it also impacts lives for many years to come. Yeah, I love there's this moment in the book you describe where a parent is asking Biff at a scrimmage, like, how's the team going to do this year, coach? And Biff says, oh, I won't know for 20 years. Right, and that's because he wants to wait and see what type of dads are going to be, what kind of citizens in their community. That's how he's going to measure it. You know, he had a great line another day same type of idea, but he told those boys one day, I expect greatness out of you. And the way we measure greatness, the only way we measure greatness is the impact you make on the lives of others. So you take those concepts and you, and you put that over the span of 10, 15, 20 years. And it's my belief that these boys, now men, will be impacting that community in ways that no one on the outside looking in ever could have imagined but in ways that Joe and Biff totally expect out of them. Well, have you done any follow-up some of the players at Gilman and how they're doing now? I have. You know, it's really been fun for me. There are probably about five or six of those boys, and I still call them boys because when I did my research and my writing of this book, of course, they were high school boys. But that was 2001, and now we're looking at them 16 years later. So, you know, they're in their mid-30s, a good number of them. It's really remarkable to see what some of them have done with their lives. And that's been a lot of fun for me not only as a writer of that book, but as someone who became friends with them and their families. And to see some of them now coaching on their own. One of them is an assistant coach at the Naval Academy. There are several others who have gone on to coaching, not necessarily at big-name schools, but in smaller communities. And just seeing the way generationally they will now touch other lives is really pretty neat to see. It's fantastic. Throughout the book, you talk about your dad. And at the end, you talk about how this season with the Gilman High School football team helped reconnect you with your father. How did that happen? Well, it happened in a way that was certainly not anticipated by me. In a way, I was kind of tricked. At first, I thought I was just going to see Joe for a day and see what he was doing up there in Baltimore because I was kind of interested after all those years. And because of our connection so much earlier, I wanted to see what he was doing. The first trick, I guess, was that I kept going back for more once I realized what was going on and how meaningful it was. And I ended up spending a full season with them. The other trick, I would say, was that I thought even once I was spending time there, I was just going to be an observer. But I actually became unknowingly a participant. Because I think it would be impossible to go through a whole season with a group like that, both the the boys playing and the men coaching, without going through some self-evaluation of your own. And I did that. I kept coming back to my relationship with my dad. The more I thought about Joe and Biff, the way they were teaching strategic masculinity, of course, that led to me thinking a lot about all of my relationships, about my cause in this world. And and as I say, I kept coming back to my dad. We talked about him a few minutes ago and, and how I always knew my dad loved me, but he wasn't the kind of guy who would express that when I was a boy. That's for sure. The first time he told me he loved me, I was 24 years old. I remember it vividly to this day. I always knew through his actions, but there were certain things that my dad could never say to me, being the stoic, being the guy who didn't show his emotions. So there were all kinds of things we could talk about as a father and a son, but there were also all kinds of things that were beyond the realm of all possibility to talk about. So, you know, at that time, in my early 40s, I wanted and needed more. I didn't want my dad to leave this world whenever that might be. And me look back and wonder what could have been in our relationship. So 
at the end of that season, 2001 season, I'll never forget it. It was Thanksgiving weekend. I lived in D.C. at that point, although I was spending so much time in Baltimore. I lived on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. My dad was still living in New York where we grew up. And he knew I was coming up for Thanksgiving weekend, but he didn't know what was coming with me. And what was coming with me was a great desire to have some real intense conversation with him, unlike we had ever had before. So we spent hours and hours that weekend, just the two of us sitting on the couch in his living room talking about all this stuff. It was absolutely amazing to see the way he responded. My dad's 83 years old now, and I'm so fortunate to still have him. He's incredibly healthy, enjoys his life so much. But I just can't even imagine what these years would have been like if we had never started that conversation in 2001. So that's a conversation that has been going and growing ever since, and it's been incredibly rich and meaningful to have that as a part of our lives and our relationship. Yeah, I loved how you referenced this book, the you know questions to ask your father, because I think a lot of a lot of men like they don't really know their dads. They don't really know anything about what they were like when they were kids. What were their dreams? What were their goals as young men? What do they think about becoming a dad? Like you don't know that stuff, and it'd be nice to know that stuff because you're going through that stuff yourself. Totally agree. And I was so fortunate. Again, it was one of these unexpected gifts. We were sitting in Joe's office at his church. Back then, he was a pastor of a large church, about 4,000 members in Baltimore. We were sitting in his office one day having one of these conversations related to his program as I was learning more for the writing of this book. And he took a phone call, and I started looking at the books on his bookshelf this day, and I was so fortunate just to stumble across his book. And when he was done on the phone, I asked him about it. He told me about it and how he had used it with his boys. And he said, go ahead, take it. You know, you might enjoy it. Check it out. Well, I did. I enjoyed it quite a bit, and I ended up using that as a blueprint for my own conversations with my dad. And it was really incredible to see not only the way that helped us along, but once I wrote about that in the book, Season of Life, there were so many other families around America who I would get emails and calls, and when I would go out for speaking engagements, one of the first things I would hear from people would be how they, too, ended up using those questions and having similar, similar conversations as a father and son that took people in so many wonderful directions. So. It was an incredible gift that Joe gave to me, and then I was able to share that with other people. So that's been a pretty special part of this as well. Well, Jeffy, this has been a great conversation. Where can people learn more about your work and your book? Well, both the book season life, and then I do a lot of work still with speaking engagements related to these topics. And all of that information can be found at a website, jeffreymarks.org. That's just one solid word, Jeffrey Marks, M-A-R-X, like x-ray.org. And then to follow the journey, and I really came to see this as a journey, not only as a book anymore, but all these years and all these experiences. I try to share that with uh, folks through the Twitter account, which is at Jeffrey Marks 25, Jeffrey Marks 25. Fantastic. Well, Jeffrey Marks, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Tremendous. Thank you, Brett. Enjoyed it. My guest today was Jeffrey Marks. He's the author of the Pulitzer Prize winning book, Season of Life. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about Jeffrey's work at jeffreymarks.org. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash season of life, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy this show, have gotten something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. That helps us out a lot. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.